any scholar with an interest in the work of the Sitwells is already deeply indebted to Neil Ritchie's annotated bibliography of Sir Cheverell Sitwell, and now even more so as a result of this new collection, which situates an extraordinary resource for researching and studying the Sitwells in the UK rather than the other place. Edith Osbert and Sir Cheverell Sitwell had extraordinarily long and productive writing careers, to which I cannot hope to do anything like justice in the 30 minutes or so that I've been asked to um, introduce them. So what I'd like to do is give something of an introduction to the Sitwells and their place within the literary scene of the 1910s and 20s, and hopefully highlight just a few examples of material within the collection that I hope you may find of particular interest and that are either part of or resonate with um, the material in the exhibition that hopefully you've already had a chance to see. In the history of modernism, few figures have been so once renowned and yet subsequently so resolutely critically dismissed as the Sitwells. For a time in the early 1920s, they were embodiment of the modernist avant-garde as it was perceived in the popular imagination. Their iconic collective image captured and stylized in photographs by Helen McGregor and Cecil Beaton, the aristocratic background, their often volatile acts of patronage, their notorious feuds with reviewers and critics, and their passionate yet typically short-lived friendships contributed to their fame as much as, if not more than, their innumerable writings. Yet the average undergraduate literature student will go through their entire degree programme, probably never hearing even mention of them. Perusing the ever-multiplying shelves of critical studies on the art and literature of the early 20th century is all that it takes to demonstrate the effective elimination of the Sitwells from both traditional and revisionist narratives of modernist literary history. They are missing from the indexes of every one of the major anthologies, guides and handbooks to modernism that have been published over the last decade or so. We have significant, substantial collective and individual biographies of Edith Osbert and Sir Cheverell by John Pearson, Victoria Glendinning, Sarah Bradford, Philip Ziegler and most recently Richard Green. But within literary and art historical criticism, their works and influence remain significantly marginalised. The implication that the Sitwells played no part in the emergence of and battles over modernist literary culture in Britain in the 1910s and 20s is an erroneous one. Indeed, they were key protagonists within the vibrant, varied cultural scene of London at the time. The children of Sir George Rearsby Sitwell, the intellectual, egotistical, eccentric baronet of Renishaw Hall in Derbyshire, and his wife Ida Denison, daughter of the first Earl of Lonsborough, the Sitwells had vehemently disowned their parents' social and cultural world, embracing the avant-garde fervour of early Georgian modernity and collectively embarking upon an unswerving crusade against the Philistinism of the English public. They launched themselves upon London's literary scene in 1916 with the publication of Wheels, the first in a series of verse anthologies edited by Edith, which set out to overtly challenge both the jingoistic sentiment and formal constraints dominating poetry in the immediately pre-war years, as well as the sentimentalism of the contemporary yet increasingly conservative Georgian poetry anthologies. The vociferous manner in which Edith and Osbert typically set about this objective brought this challenge very much into the public eye, with the result that Wheels with contributions by all three Sitwells, Nancy Cunard, Iris Tree, Aldous Huxley and Wilfred Owen, among others, performed a significant role in the battle between the moderns and the Georgians that was played out in the English poetry scene over the 1910s and early 1920s. 
This is an early painting of Edith, who insisted that she be uh, referred to as the editor of Wheels from 1916. Over the next five years, the Sitwells pursued a dedicated and exhaustive programme of writing and editing, including a further five Wheels cycles, Osbert's editorship of the little magazine Arts and Letters, and a steady stream of poems, essays and short stories in everything from newspapers to small art reviews to society magazines. As both Neil Ritchie and Richard Feifert's bibliographical records testify, they were extraordinarily prolific writers, not only in poetry, but also um, fiction, essays, art criticism and other prose works. By the end of the 1910s, Edith was forging a significant reputation as Britain's premier female avant-garde poet. The Sitwell brothers, meanwhile, conceived of themselves not only as poets, and Osbert as an extremely sharp-eyed satirist, but also rather in the manner of empresarios, discovering and nurturing new talent. With Osbert's speed in spending the majority of his allowance on art and the entertainment of like-minded friends, and Sir Chevrel's astute eye for protégés, they were becoming patrons of a contemporary avant-garde. In 1919, they organised an exhibition of modern French art, the first since before the war, at Heels, featuring the work of post-impressionists such as Matisse and Picasso, alongside new discoveries, Modigliani, Neutrillo. By the early 1920s, they had commissioned work from Frank Dobson, Gino Severini, Picasso, Modigliani, Juan Gris, Gaudia Bresca, William Roberts, and Wyndham Lewis, a perhaps surprisingly regular companion between 1918 and the intriguing circumstances of the Sitwells falling out with him in 1925 when he purportedly made advances to Edith during one of the daily sittings for her portrait. If the Sitwells' aesthetic manifesto was somewhat vague, the force of their combined presence as literateurs and connoisseurs of the arts was indisputable. An invitation to Osbert's marble dining table at Carlisle Square promised gustatory pleasure and the urbane art of conversation alongside Saatchi, William Walton, Arnold Bennett, Uncle Arnold, as a copy of Sir Chevrel's Southern Baroque art in the collection is inscribed, or Sir J. Diaglyph. While at the more frugal Saturday afternoons in Edith Bayswater flat, the latest social climbing Oxford undergraduate with a talent for verse might find himself consuming tea and buns in conversation with W.B. Yeats, T.S. Eliot or Virginia Woolf. Some of their friends and acquaintances may have doubted the authenticity of their literary weight. Why are they thought daring and clever? Virginia Woolf asked. But for a younger generation, their combination of eccentric personality, stylized artistry and aristocratic background held immense appeal. The Sitwells represented the rush towards pleasure and aesthetic enjoyment characteristic of the intelligent young who had come through the war, Cyril Connolly remembered, of their influence in the mid-1920s. They were the natural allies of Cocteau and the Ecole de Paris, dandies, impeccably dressed and fed, who indicated to young men down from Oxford and even Cambridge that it was possible to reconcile art and fashion as an alternative to Bloomsbury. Everything of aesthetic significance appeared to be happening within their orbit, Harold Acton recalled, while even War, Evelyn War admitted that despite the longevity of such eminent figures of Yeats and Thomas Hardy, quote, there was little doubt in any of our minds as to whom we aspired to know. Already it was the Sitwells, for they radiated an aura of high spirit, elegance, impudence, unpredictability, above all of sheer enjoyment, unquote. A young Cecil Beaton, on asking a more worldly wise friend, what on earth can I become in life, received the reply, I wouldn't bother too much about being anything in particular. 
just become a friend of the Sitwells and wait and see what happens. The Sitwells. The reference to Edith, Osbert and Sir Chevrolet in the plural recurs again and again in both contemporary records and memoirs of the 1920s. However different their writings may have been and however rare their actual collaboration, particularly after the early 1920s, in the eyes of the public, they came as a collective. To be sure, this reputation was initially at least self-generated. As Osbert's biographer Philip Ziegler writes, in the years after the First World War, it was entirely by their own doing that the Sitwells were perceived as a literary troika by the world at large. Osbert's fervent promotion of the Sitwell name was something that Edith was quick to collude in and Sir Chevrel at first went along with. In their campaign to position themselves as the leaders of an English avant-garde during the immediately post-war years, as Ziegler notes, the indivisibility of the trio was of first importance. The Sitwells were far more worthy of attention than one Sitwell, or indeed six Sitwells taken in isolation, could possibly have been. While this collective branding certainly helped to raise the profile of the trio in the late 1910s and 20s, it yet became a constraint that later, they later found impossible to shake off. Anthony Powell commented in his memoirs in 1978, the triune nature of the family cartel, fatally effective at the time as a vehicle of publicity, has not otherwise been advantageous to the Sitwells as individual writers. The popular focus on the Sitwells as a trio of eccentric, aristocratic, artistic personalities obscured the genuine differences in genre, theme, style and purpose that was evident in their actual works. Edith complained in the later 1940s, Osbert, Sacheverell and I are extremely displeased when we are treated as if our works are a mass production. We do not like to be treated as if we were an aggregate Indian god with three sets of legs and arms, but otherwise indivisible. We have all three suffered very much from this. What really secured the Sitwell's notoriety in the public imagination, however, was the performance at the Aeolian Hall in June 1923 of the verse and music entertainment piece Facade, in which Edith read a series of her poems set to music by Walton. Modelled in part on Arnold Schoenberg's highly successful poetic melodrama Pierre Lunaire, 1912, it was intended as a showpiece of artistic experimentation in the manner of Jean Cocteau's ballet Parade, 1917, the controversial reception of which had made Cocteau a household name and confirmed his reputation as avant-garde enfant terrible. Façade, the Sitwells thought, would surely fly in the face of the conventional or bourgeois art-goer and be recognised as a masterpiece of post-war British avant-gardism. During the performance, Edith sat out of sight behind a curtain specially commissioned from the artist Frank Dobson, reciting in melodramatic tones through an instrument resembling a papier-mâché megaphone. This protruded through a half-white, half-pink mask that Dobson had painted at the centre of the curtain. Osbert announced the poems through a second sengaphone, extending from a smaller black mask on the right. When first presented to a select group of friends at Carlisle Square the previous year, the reception had been bewildered but politely encouraging. The response of the audience in 1923, listening with incredulity to what appeared to be nursery rhymes, reportedly ranged from aggression to indifference. Accounts of the evening vary between the retrospective reconstructions of Edith and Osbert themselves, who described the audience as so incensed that Edith was in danger of attack, and the more measured accounts of other writers and artists that suggest the Sitwell happening was really something of a non-event. 
Certainly the newspaper reports from the following morning indicate little of the contempt and rage on the part of the audience later described by the Sitwells, commenting instead on the incomprehensibility of the verse and the weakness of the musicians. To many sceptical eyes, Facade was simply a bid to be outrageous for its own sake. That it earned the Sitwells notoriety in the broader public imagination is true, but this was arguably thanks in no small part to the presence of Noel Coward in the audience, whom Osbert had personally invited to the performance, suggesting, Coward later claimed, that he might see something that would interest him. Quick to recognise the makings of a farce when he saw one, for Coward, the evening proved an inspiration, if not quite of the kind that Osbert had anticipated. When Coward's first musical review, London Calling, opened at the Duke of York's theatre three months later, running for 367 performances to packed audiences, it included a skilful spoof of the Sitwells as the Swiss family Whittlebot. Generous as friends, sometimes alarmingly zealous as patrons, Edith and Osbert were vituperative in enemies, quick to see red at the slightest imagined offence, and usually rallying the milder Sachevrel into support. In this case, the insult of being mocked for the comic entertainment of packed theatre audiences was too much for Edith to bear, and Osbert fired off two increasingly angry letters to Coward, demanding that he issue a public apology. A disingenuous Coward pleaded ignorance of any offence, but the appearance of Poems by Hernia Whittlebot, which I think is in the exhibition, shortly afterwards revealed that he was still enjoying much fun at the Sitwell's apoplectic expense. The publicity afforded by the conjunction of Facade and the Whittlebot saga, however, gave some compensatory satisfaction with which to nurse the Sitwell's offended sensibilities. Rallying to their combative best, Edith and Osbert turned the affair into something of a cause celebre in their battle against the hostility of the Philistine bourgeois public and the years that followed witnessed the high point of the Sitwell's cultish status amongst a younger post-war generation. The appearance in 1924 of Osbert's short story collection, Triple Fogue, and his discursions on travel, art and life in 1925, and satiric novella Before the Bombardment in 1926. Alongside Sir Chevrel's poetry collection, The 13th Caesar, and the perhaps surprisingly popular art historical piece, Southern Baroque Art, both from 1924, and finally, Sir Chevrel's libretto for Diaghilev's English ballet, The Triumph of Neptune, in 1926. A revised and this time immensely successful performance of Facade was held at the Chenille Galleries the same year. Coward, however, would remain persona non grata for decades until a chance meeting and hint from Osbert and a subsequent fan letter to Edith complimenting her on her latest book, The Queens and the Hive, brought a gracious invitation to tea. How strange that a 40-year feud should end so gracefully and so suddenly, Coward reflected in his diary, noting that he found his long-term enemy completely charming, very amusing and rather touching. He added, however, I am fairly unrepentant about her poetry. I really think that three quarters of it is gibberish. That Miss Whittlebot could be so successful a parody is a marker of the recognisability of the Sitwell persona. Indeed, as early as 1921, two years before Coward's Swiss family Whittlebot, there had been a spoof of Wheels, entitled Cranks, an anthology, also in the Richie Ritchie collection, ostensibly compiled by Osbert, Siebert and Ethelberta Standstill, and including poems by Shearhard Lines, Sherrod Vines, and Alfalfa Huxter.
Aldous Huxley. The critique was directed at the Sitwells themselves as the mock manifesto for standstillism that forms the preface indicates. We, the Cranks group, are not simply a vogue, not merely a symptom. We are more than a sign in the heavens. We are the beginning of an epoch. Already standstillism is a word on the lips of the cognoscenti, if not yet upon those of the illiterate. Future biographers are at this moment busy gathering standstillana. The parody was unfortunately rather prescient. In 1927, Rodolphe Megro, publishing the first critical study of the trio, the three Sitwells, identified a phenomenon of Sitwellism. And in the same year, the Sitwells themselves produced Sitwelliana, published by Duckworth, and as comprising a select bibliography of their writings that had, been, that had been compiled, the editor Thomas Bolston declared in his introduction, to meet, quote, the frequent requests received by their present publishers for a list of the titles of all their works, unquote. If such an inventory seemed premature for three young writers who were continuing to write prodigiously, it had become clear, Bolston explains, that many of these requests were from people who were not merely readers, but also collectors, and collectors, he notes, of first editions. Trade orders were commonly made for Sitwell publications only a first edition, and second-hand booksellers were also listing Sitwell editions in their catalogues, all of which, Bolston notes, provided further evidence that the works of, quote, these three authors are now being widely and systematically collected, unquote. Such self-commodification was a marketing strategy that the Sitwells were eager to embrace. Produced in a select edition of 70 copies in decorated paper boards and accompanied by lithographic portraits of each sibling by Albert Rutherstone, signed copies of which were included as separate plates and a folded back cover, Sitwelliana itself was a collector's piece, intended for the collector, the connoisseur, rather than the reader. The Sitwell's interventions in the marketplace were part of their efforts to be leaders of the avant-garde cause, yet while the Sitwell identity held a cultural capital that could serve this purpose amongst younger acolytes, their celebrity also increasingly served to alienate those who had always been more circumspect about their relatively, relative literary merit, and for whom the emergence of a vogue for celebrity culture, encouraged by the focus of the popular newspapers on the personalities and private lives of public people, was already a topic of concern. A reviewer for The Observer commented in 1927, the Sitwells are known to everyone who has even a casual acquaintance with modern literature, though many who talk of them seem to have read about their doings rather than studied them in their own works. And he continued, this was the necessary consequence of the Sitwellian methods of publicity. Frank Swinnerton, looking back in his study of the Georgian literary scene in 1935, said, the tactics obscured the talent. The Sitwells drew attention to themselves and caused warier folk to shake heads at such mandbankery. If Swinnerton accorded a certain significance to the Sitwells within the emergent scene of British modernism, the Sitwells had talent, he implied, but abused it in their open embrace of the strategies of the celebrity industry. F.R. Levis doubted even that. The Sitwells belonged more to the history of publicity than poetry, he declared dismissively in 1932. Publicity and poetry, he implied, were mutually exclusive, and the Sitwells' cultivation of their public image and reputation disqualified them from serious recognition as poets and writers.
One of the reasons for the disappearance of the Sitwells from histories of the emergence of English modernism, despite the ubiquity of their work in the review columns of the 1910s and 20s, is perhaps partly the frivolity, artifice and exaggeration of their writing, as well as the exuberance of this creation of their own cult of personality, so distinct from the classicist aesthetic standard by which modernism would subsequently come to be understood. In his bifurcation of publicity and poetry, the artist and the work, Levis was of course articulating what would become canonical modernism's model of the elite artist, the godlike creator of Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man who, quote, remains within or behind or beyond or above his handiwork, invisible, refined out of existence, indifferent, paring his fingernails, unquote. It was with the contemporaneous new critical project when the now traditional modernist canon of Pound, Joyce, Eliot et al became enshrined in 20th century literary understanding that the Sitwells suffered their most effective eviction from the literary academy. If modernist orthodoxy was to be defined by imagist aesthetics and formal impersonality as Hugh Kinner and others prescribed, then the Sitwells, whose writing was so very Baroque and for whom personality was essential to the artistic endeavour, could not be a part of it. Indifference and impersonality were not the Sitwell way of doing things. One of the most influential trends in modernist scholarship over the past decade or so, however, has been a historicised and materialist turn that hand in hand with the return to the archive has resituated the examination of modernism within the social and cultural contexts of its original production, publicisation and reception. Work in this vein has significantly redressed a previously canonical set of narratives and ideologies by which modernism has long been understood and challenge such entrenched critical paradigms as the purported divide between elite and popular culture, between the highbrow and the middlebrow, and the autonomy of the artist from the marketplace. Many of the best examples have drawn upon detailed archival work to reconstruct and reconfigure the modernist scene, demonstrating that it was a far more varied and contested field than subsequent genealogies might have led readers to suppose, and that despite their ambivalence towards commercial culture, Modernist writers and artists were necessarily involved with and influenced by the dynamics of marketing and publicity. What has become increasingly apparent as a result of such work is that the Sitwells were far from alone in their engagement with the world of self-promotion and literary celebrity. As contemporary scholars increasingly explore the social and institutional contours of modernism and its relationship with the marketplace, with consumerism, with celebrity, the Sitwells' notoriety their public profile as literary personalities is one of the very things that makes them so ripe for rediscovery as significant figures within the cultural fabric of modernism as it emerged and was shaped in the 10s, 20s and 30s. And yet there is here too, I think, a, a word of warning. While the cult of personality is integral to the significance of the Sitwells within the history of the 1910s and 20s, we should be wary of concentrating on this to the exclusion of a contextualised, aesthetic, formal and thematic interest in their writing. In so doing, consolidating the practice that it is the lives of the Sitwells rather than their writings that is the only thing of interest to literary history. Lawrence Rainey's advocation of a strategy of not reading, of demystifying the aura of the text and revealing through a careful examination of the ephemera that makes up so much of the rest of the modernist archive, its institutional and commercial history,
has been a controversial but productive one where accepted modernist masterpieces are concerned. The Sitwells are a somewhat different case in that they have always been recognised by the Academy as operators within the modernist marketplace and under a very different critical ideology dismissed accordingly. In fact, celebrity did not necessarily mean a readership. As the poet Robert Nichols wrote in Fisbo, another of the many parodies of the Sitwells in 1934, this time particularly targeted at Osbert, today a poet is not read, he's seen. And when unseen, too sick say to go out, he is not read, Lord no, he's read about. It was the fate of the Sitwells that even their work was often not actually read as read about. As one reviewer wrote in 1946, it is a strange thing that while one is always coming upon people who are just about to read the new Sitwell, and people who have just read the new Sitwell, and people who really must read the new Sitwell, it is rarely that one comes upon anyone who is actually reading the new Sitwell. One sees them, all three of them, here and there in the best houses, laid out on nicely polished occasional tables in their charming Rococo or Piper-esque dust jackets. Sir Osbert in the drawing room, Dr Edith beside the bed, Sir Chevrel a little uncertainly perhaps in the spare room, the best spare room of course and dusted every day. They have an air of being for ornament rather than for use. Once I typed that out, I realised that in an appalling example of bad archival practice, I hadn't actually fully referenced it, and I now have to kind of dive through the reference to But it was such a lovely quote, I decided to leave it in. The Sitwell collection here at Merton is, I hope, for use more than it is an ornament. For any re researcher interested in excavating the Sitwell's extraordinary prominence within the literary marketplace of the first half of the 20th century, and in exploring their prolific output, all of which, with the exception of Edith's poetry, is currently out of print, the archive is a necessity. Mr Ritchie's bequest is thus particularly timely, offering the scholar an extensive collection of material from which aspects of the Sitwell's position and self-positioning within the social cultural networks of the early 20th century literary scene begin to emerge, and particularly alongside other collections within the Merton College Library um, that it sits very much in dialogue with, the Basil Blackwell Archive, as well as the T.S. Eliot and Max Beerbohm collections. Complementing uh, the manuscript material in the collection, though, I think specific mention must go to the numerous first editions and presentation copies of the Sitwell's works, many of which have inscriptions which demonstrates some of the ways in which the Sitwells, particularly Osbert and Edith, use their works to honour figures of the literary establishment, as well as to forge social and artistic connections, and even to try and exert some influence on the way in which they were received and reviewed. The inscribed copies were one of the things that Neil Ritchie was particularly intrigued by and interested in the, in the collection. Um, and he's written a fascinating, stimulating essay uh, for the Private Library Journal on the inscribed Sitwell, Sitwelliana and its significance. Of these copies, one of the most uh, notable examples is the white leather-bound copy of Wheels produced specially for Robert Ross, Oscar Wilde's friend and executor who devoted much of his time in the 1910s to the formative artistic mentorship of a small male coterie of writers and artists, including Osbert, Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen and Robert Graves. 
Ross's social and literary contacts were influential, among them Arnold Bennett, George Bernard Shaw, the art and literary critic Edmund Goss, and Henry Massingham, editor of the radical weekly The Nation. And all of these provided important sponsorship for the Sitwell's entry into the London literary scene of the 1910s. The white-bound copy is presumably that referred to in Edith's letter to Ross of 1917, when she sends him our latest copy of Wheels with thanks for your kindness and encouragement. Others, in, other inscribed copies of interest include the copy of Southern Baroque Art inscribed to Uncle Arnold and the numerous copies of Osbert's work inscribed to Siegfried Sassoon and that contain both newspaper pieces written by the Sitwells and press reviews of their work pasted into the covers as well as annotations by Sassoon himself, particularly in Osbert's autobiography where he regularly comments in the margin if, if, if Osbert's got the dates wrong. Are the Sitwells worth worrying about? Sassoon wrote in his diary in February 1922, at one of the lowest points in his on-off relationship with the Sitwells, but one in which his thoughts are, are regularly preoccupied with and troubled by them. The Sassoon collection of Sitwelliana that forms part of the Ritchie archive provides a complement to the diaries in the obsessive layering of reviews and markings and comments with which Sassoon surrounds the works. Another section of the Ritchie archive collects the various parodies of the Sitwells, including several that I don't think have been identified before, um, such as Scott Moncrieff's Four Authors in Search of a Character, which is on display in the exhibition. And all of the, the parodies reveal both the currency of the Sitwells within popular perceptions of what the modern was in the early 1920s, as well as their frequent role as the targets of anti-modernist satire more generally. I very much hope that Neil Ritchie's bequest will facilitate a new acquaintance with the Sitwells. It offers the means for a new readership to examine their writings in a way that moves beyond the simplistic text biography divide of poetry versus publicity, and that explores Sitwelliano alongside and in relation to a reading and appreciation of the aesthetic preoccupations and imaginative patterns of their key works the fiercely experimental rhythms of Edith's facade poems, for example, the terrible gaiety that underscores her stock cast of clowns, minstrels and pierros, and the extraordinary visions of her atomic bomb poems. The bitterness of Osbert's war poetry and the wit of his best satires, as well as the Proustian remembrance and recreation of past time that is his five-volume autobiography. And in the elaborate fancies and idiosyncratic connoisseurship, of Sachevrel's aesthetic panoramas and meandering impressionistic art historical tours. If we want to rediscover, to reread the Sitwells, then the Neil Ritchie bequest is our most useful resource. Thank you. <laughs>